Because they're these big communities, you're almost like pushed to attach yourself to one of them and become a string theorist or become a loop quantum gravity person. And I think that is unfortunate. And you could say that we always operate in like a digital uh, universe where if gravity is fundamentally classical, there needs to be a lot more noise in the gravitational field in comparison to the quantum case. Jonathan Oppenheim, a professor of physics at Oxford, centers his work on a new approach for combining quantum principles with gravity, specifically sidestepping mainstream frameworks like loop quantum gravity and string theory. His research instead focuses on the stochastic coupling between gravity and quantum mechanics. This is one of the most dense of all the Toe podcasts in terms of informational content per minute, rivaling that of some of the Carl Friston episodes. Contrary to the ordinarily trodden path of quantum gravity, which often dominate conversations on unifying quantum mechanics and general relativity, Oppenheim introduces stochastic processes as a new axis for inquiry. What ramifications does this have for prevailing theories? We explore that. Jonathan's expertise extends to quantum information, and he's done plenty of work on the quantum version of thermodynamic laws, like the second law and the third law. Something not explored in this episode, but I can't seem to find it anywhere, is the connection between the classical and the quantum by making an equivalence between imaginary periodic time and finite temperature. This is also known as analytic continuation and is often just proposed as an unphysical mathematical scheme rather than a profound connection between quantum field theory and statistical mechanics. If anyone knows more about the bridge between these two, then please let me know. At the end of this episode, there will be lengthy updates. Always feel free to use the timestamps, which are in every single Theories of Everything episode, to jump to the sections that you're interested in most. Also, if you're interested in submitting a question for Jonathan when he comes on again, or any Toe guest, from this point forward, we're instituting a new system. You comment with the word query, then a colon, and then your question. This way, it's easy for me to parse through, okay, if I'm interviewing Jonathan again, I just look at the old Jonathan episode, control F for the word query, and then I find all the questions and I can then submit them to Jonathan in the episode itself, crediting your username, either in the description or orally. My name is Kurt Jaimungle, and I have a background in mathematical physics, and I use that to analyze the various theories of everything that are out there, like string theory, like Wolfram's, like what's coming up is Peter White's Euclidean twister unification. But I also explore consciousness and its role in fundamental law. Again, look forward to the lengthy updates at the end of this episode. Enjoy this podcast with Jonathan Oppenheim. Professor Oppenheim, welcome. You were famous a couple months ago, Oppenheimer, the movie came out. You must have got a slew of traffic and interest as well. And your Quanta video, which will be on screen right now, Quanta Magazine, also came out around the same time. So a flurry of interest for your approach, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, a little bit. We went to see Barbie instead of Oppenheimer, so... You didn't watch Oppenheimer? Not yet. It's on my list. Fantastic. It's a <laughs> fantastic movie, man. Did you enjoy Barbie? I did, actually. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> well, what do you enjoy most about it? Um, I mean, I, it made me want to get um, a shirt which says, I'm Knaf on it, so... Anywhere else I'd be a 10. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I wasn't a fan of some of the messaging, but I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Anyhow, okay. What are you working on these days and what excites you about it? Um, well, we've, you know, we've proposed this um, theory of, of gravity, which uh, is meant to reconcile general relativity um, and quantum theory. Um, and so most of you have just been working on that. Um, I do a little bit of quantum information theory as well on the side. Um, but at the moment, most of my group is working on you know, the, the kind of the, what follows from this classical quantum theory. 
You used an interesting word, which is reconcile quantum mechanics and general relativity or quantum and gravity. Whereas most people, as you know, most of the physics community would say quantize gravity. Right. As almost a synonym of making yes. gravity and quantum harmonious. So why do you use that word reconcile and not quantize? Well, I mean, yeah, so you know, people realized, I guess more than 100 years ago, that general relativity, because it's a classical theory, is incompatible with quantum theory. Um, and people usually will write down the Einstein equations, which have, you know, the stress energy tensor of matter on one side, and then they'll show that it's equal to the uh, Einstein tensor, which is, um, you know, tells us about ma about uh, geometry on the other side. And they'll say, you know, that in almost every lecture on quantum gravity, they'll say, well, you can't have a operator representing matter in quantum theory equal to some classical number representing geometry in general relativity. So um, uh, that's usually how it's presented. And the, the usual statement is that we therefore need to quantize gravity in order to make these two things compatible. To be clear, classical in this case means what? Definite values? I mean, that's a good question. Um, in classical mechanics, we, you know, objects take a, a a definite value. And for example, if I have a particle, it might have a definite value for its position and a definite value for its momentum. I could also imagine that I have a probability distribution of classical systems. So for example, you might imagine that someone's flipped a coin and with some probability they've prepared a particle to have a certain position and momentum. And with some other, if the coin comes up, say heads, they'll prepare the particle with one position and momentum. And if the coin comes up tails, they'll prepare the particle to have a different position and momentum. So um, classical systems can don't need to be in definite states. They can be in a probability distribution of definite states. But we imagine that there's a fact of the matter about them, even though we might not know, you know, what values of position and momentum the system has, it, it does have those values in some way. Whereas a quantum system, I mean, the main thing about a quantum system is it doesn't even, you know, a, a particle never actually has a definite position on a Newton. So that's the one way to see the difference. Is that a controversial statement? Because there are different quantum theories or interpretations of quantum mechanics where they do. It's just that the wave function represents our knowledge or they're hidden variable theories. Right. I mean, um, so you, you, so, uh, you know, one of the most famous and I think most important, um, results in physics is Bell's theorem, um, which essentially says that at least if you have a local theory, um, then the particles don't have a position and a momentum. So I think m most physicists and most of the lay public is used to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which says that a particle, we can never know a particle's position and momentum um, at the same time. And what Bell, what Bell's theorem says is it goes one step further. It, it says that the particle doesn't even have a position and a momentum until we measure it. Now, that assumes that the you know there's a there's a slight caveat to that. You can imagine a theory which is very non-local, uh, which somehow keeps track of the particle's position and momentum. But I think most physicists don't believe that such a theory makes a lot of sense. And so I think most most physicists have accepted the fact that the particle doesn't actually have a definite position and momentum. You once said that quantum mechanics, I think quantum mechanics or quantum field theory comes with plenty of ontological baggage. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess I, 
I've described myself as a, as a, as a quantum mechanic with a lot of ontological baggage. And the, the term actually comes, uh, I think, uh, probably coined by Lucien Hardy, um, who essentially says that if we, you know, he proves some results, which essentially say that if, um, if we want to have a hidden variable theory, then the amount of information that we need to somehow have, um, the amount of information that we need to keep track of becomes incredibly large, becomes infinite. So any sort of a hidden variable theory uh, which describes quantum mechanics needs to keep track of a huge amount of information, and he calls that ontological baggage. Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons that we tend, to, people tend not to like hidden variable theories. They're rather unwieldy. They have to be non-local. They need to keep track of an infinite amount of information. And so it's much easier just to believe in quantum theory. I recall Nima said that, I'm unsure if it's Nima, but someone said that even in general relativity, you don't have knowing anything with arbitrary accuracy because if you were to know something with like infinite accuracy, you'd have to store that somewhere so that information would carry with it energy and that would create a black hole. Um, I mean, in some sense, you know, because if you believe in the continuum, then in some in some ways, any particle has an infinite amount of information that's required to um, to really store or, you know, store the information about a particle. But when we perform measurements, we tend to think of our measurements as being relatively weak and not containing, you know, they don't reveal to us all that information. So we're always somehow operating in a kind of an approximate landscape where we don't keep track or we don't even learn you know, for example, we don't, we don't learn the position of a system to arbitrary accuracy to an infinite number of digits. We just learn about it to some small number of digits. So in some sense, you could say that we always operate in like a digital uh, universe where uh, you know, the amount of uh, digits that we keep track of is not the full, is not infinite, but it's some finite precision. Now, a popular topic these days is the simulation hypothesis. And so when you say digital physics, you just mean that there's something discrete about it rather than simulated. Right. I mean, in, yeah, well, physicists often will just often consider like a discrete space versus a continuous space, which has just a finite amount of information. And uh, there's a question about whether that is good enough and is, equi is equivalent. Do we ever need um, to consider systems which have an infinite, which are infinite dimensional and have an infinite amount of information. Uh -huh. um, that's actually a, a popular topic right now in, uh, you know, for example, string theorists now are spending a lot of time looking at von Neumann algebras and, you know, can we actually in a field theory really define in a nice way the entropy of a system because that actually, you know, in a continuum is really difficult to define. So in physics, we tend to mostly think that we can describe things with just a finite, with finite precision and not worry about the fact that, you know, really these are continuous systems which really require an infinite amount of information to describe properly. Yeah. Nicholas Gisson also had this argument about there not being a continuum because he said, like, look, let's imagine the electron's classical or just some particle. If it's characterized by a real number, then most of the time, most real numbers are not computable and they have an infinite right. amount of, okay. But then that would mean that the particle would carry with it that information. And what does that mean that the particle would carry with it that information? It just is. The <laughs> particle just moving along. It doesn't have a coordinate. We don't think that it carries with it 
it chooses a basis to describe itself with coordinates. Right. So right. what's exactly meant when someone says that in a continuum, a particle would have infinite information carried with it? Well, I suppose it's just a question of like, if, if there's a particle out there, um, could I, is there, you know, can I, you could just ask the question, could I learn, uh, well, I guess uh, one can get quite philosophical here. Like, does the particle carry an infinite amount of information and I just can't know all of it? Or I can only know a finite amount of it? Or um, or does it actually just have a finite amount of information and that's all I mm. need to describe it? And I'm not mm. sure that as physicists we would necessarily make a big distinction between the two cases. Um, if we can't measure um, and if if we can't measure and learn you know, its its position to arbitrary accuracy, then does it have a position to arbitrary accuracy? I I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, you mentioned the word philosophy, philosophical there. What role does... And Lucian Hardy, I believe, is a physicist, but also considers himself to be a philosopher. Um, yeah, I, well, at least I consider himself to, to... I consider him to be on the philosophical end of, yeah. of physics. In some circles the philosophy of physics is not looked down upon and then in some it is and i'd say most it is now in your view where do you stand like what are the pros and cons of philosophy as applied to physics well i think if you right i mean i think if you study um, quantum theory then there is an element of you know philosophy about it. i would say that you know bell's theorem which is a theorem in physics has huge philosophical implications um so it's somehow hard to get away from, you know, I think we're, we're, if we're doing quantum theory or gravity for that matter, I think we're definitely on the boundary of physics and philosophy. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure that I would know how to tell you where physics ends and philosophy starts. Mm -hmm. Now it's true that there was a, there was a time when say, for example, the interpretations of quantum theory, uh, which is a, a which is on the philosophical end of, uh, physics, where that had a bad name, but I think uh, I, I think that's no longer the case. In part because I think that the we've been able to be a lot more precise um, about you know and say more about possible interpretations of quantum mechanics, for example. All right, now I want to get to your specific advantage as a quantum informationalist. Is it quantum informationist or quantum informationalist? <laughs> quantum information uh, theorist? I don't know. Yeah, okay. So as a quantum information theorist, okay, well, actually, let me spell out the way that I see it from the outside. It seems like if you love general relativity, if you're a relativist, the approach that most resonates with you is loop quantum gravity. And then if you're a quantum field theorist, the approach that most resonates with you is string theory. It's like seen as an extension of quantum field theory. And those are the large two broad ones. But then there's quantum information. So if you go into quantum gravity, oh, sorry for saying the word quantum gravity, but you understand the reconciliation <laughs> of quantum mechanics and gravity right. from a quantum information perspective, you generate different ideas, much like you do if you're a relativist versus quantum field theorist. So there's Chiara Marletto, who also came to constructor theory from being in quantum computing slash quantum right. information. Right. And you have a different approach. So can you talk about the advantages that someone who's trained in quantum information has when attempting to make coherent quantum mechanics and gravity? Right. I, I mean, it's a good question, and I'm not sure how much of it is related to the community of quantum, quantum information theory versus the actual study of quantum information theory. But I would, you know, I, 
I would say that in terms of having a deep understanding of quantum theory, that is, I think, I think the quantum information theory community and the quantum computation theory community really has a, a very deep understanding of quantum mechanics. So one of the reasons I got um, interested in quantum information theory is because I felt I needed to understand quantum theory better. Um, if you come, you know, in the high energy physics community or the uh, gravity community, I think there wasn't an appreciation for what parts of quantum theory you could modify and what parts of quantum theory you would have a lot of trouble and get into trouble if you modified. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why that's the case. It didn't have to be the case, but just from a, a community point of view, that is the case. And, and maybe it's because if you are studying, say, computation, you're interested in classical computation and quantum computation, and you can start thinking about other forms of computation from other, you know, how could you modify our physical laws and how would that change the laws of computation? Um, and so for whatever reason, I think there's a deep understanding of, you know, how you can change quantum theory and how you shouldn't change quantum theory. Um, a good example of that is linearity. Um, you know, if you're, if you come from quantum information theory, you know, you know we would never, we would, there are certain parts of quantum theory, which we wouldn't change. We would, we would want our theory to be linear, um, meaning that it, if you flip coins and prepare different sorts of systems, um, depending on the outcome of the coin toss, then uh, the, your dynamics shouldn't, shouldn't be sensitive to what the values of those coins are. Um, or, for example, uh, we would say that uh, any theory of nature, if it's a theory that acts on the density matrix of a quantum system, should make sure that probabilities get mapped to probabilities and then it has certain mathematical properties. So I think the quantum information theory community is just quite used to considering different sorts of dynamics and what sort of dynamics is allowed. And maybe that comes a little bit because we study things like decoherence and um, uh, we study, you know, uh, quantum systems which interact with other quantum systems like an environment which we ignore and forget about. And so the dynamics is, uh, in some sense, a bit more general than what is considered in straight up quantum theory that you might learn in an undergraduate um, quantum mechanics course. What's the name of the approach? Does it have a name? Um, so it, 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 I guess, has gone by, you know, this, it has many names in some sense. So um, I, I called it a post-quantum theory of classical gravity um, because it, you know, gravity is classical. Um, but quantum mechanics is modified slightly. It doesn't need the measurement postulate. So it's like a post-quantum theory. Um, it had been, you know, people have um, proposed for, for probably almost a hundred, almost as, as long as there's been an idea that we should quantize gravity. There's also been um, people who have suggested that maybe gravity could be classical. And so there's something that goes by the name of hybrid gravity or classical quantum gravity. Um, that has also existed out there. Yeah. Uh, okay. You don't call it by a moniker. You just write papers about it. But when you're referring to it, you don't call it, this is classical quantum gravity or this is post. Because calling it post-quantum is a description. It's not like a title like geometric unity or causal dynamic no, triangulation. Right. What I'm asking for is, is there a title? 
I don't yet have a good name, but maybe yeah. <laughs> I thought of calling it. Someone once said that it was a mongrel theory because it's you know a blend of a quantum theory and a classical theory. So I, I thought about calling it mongrel relativity, but uh, I don't oh, actually. That's fantastic. I don't have a good name for it. Maybe someone in your mongrel theory. Mongrel theory is great. Mongrel mongrel relativity. I don't know. For the sake of this discussion, we're going to call it mongrel relativity. Why not? Why not? I want you to explain what MG is. But do so with the transition of why you don't like the current approaches to making gravity and quantum mechanics cooperate. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Um, well, let's start, yeah, let's start with that. I, I wouldn't say I don't like the current approaches. I, um, I think I'm more of the view that there's been this assumption, and I think based on some incorrect arguments, there's been this assumption that we have to quantize gravity. And uh, yeah, we started off by by starting with the, you know, the Einstein equation where you have matter on one side, which is quantum, and it should be equal to something which is classical, and that doesn't make sense. So people have thought we have to quantize gravity. Um, and 
there's been a, a bit of a you know a discussion about that. I think in part because we've spent more than a hundred years of failing to quantize gravity, and so because there's been about this hundred years of failure, um, one can you know it's, it's it's useful to think well is this really the right approach or is it possible that we've gone down and are taking a wrong direction? Um, so I, I don't know what the correct answer is. I don't know if gravity is quantum or classical or something else. Um, I suppose my perspective is just that we should, uh, because these the arguments that people marshaled um, claiming that we had to quantize gravity, because these, those have turned out to be incorrect, I think it's important to revisit the issue and to explore the possibility that maybe gravity could somehow be fundamentally classical. And I think there's some motivation for that. I don't think it is just a random idea that, okay, maybe gravity is special and classical. I think there's some you know, good arguments you can make in favor of not quantizing gravity. Um, so that's my perspective, just that it's possible that it could be classical um, gravity. And there's some reason to believe that gravity is special and different to the other forces and therefore should remain classical. Mm. What would some of those reasons be? Um, so I think that, you know, gravity is different from other forces in that it is, uh, what Einstein's general relativity tells us is that matter, uh, causes space time to bend. And it's that curvature of space time that is the manifestation of gravity. So, you know, we're just following a straight line. We're just, you know, falling, free falling in a geodesic. And that's uh, because space-time is curved, that gives us the appearance of a force, which we call gravity. Um, but it's it's the only force which can be described universally as a geometry. So um, in that way, gravity is, is special. It, it's, it mm. universally describes this background causal structure, um, which the rest of you know, which all the other fields, you know, live in this arena of this curved background geometry. Um, and so there's, you know, you can, there are reasons to imagine that that background structure has to be fundamentally classical. Um, and I think one of the, the main reasons I would give for that is that um, the causal structure seems to be, which, which gravity gives us, so it, it you know, gives us this causal structure, um, I don't think that we really know how to do quantum theory without that causal structure. At least I don't know any way of doing it. Um, and we can try and quantize it, but then in some sense, I feel like we lose our legs. We lose all this background structure, which we needed in order to perform quantum theory. And is this related to, you make a non-canonical choice at some point. Right. And so you lose something that's special about general relativity. That's right. So, you know, you can imagine, I mean, let's just even start with how physicists, you know, like what is physics? So, you know, usually what we do is we specify some system at um, some initial time and then we ask how does it evolve and, you know, predict what's going to happen to it in at some future time. Um, and in a quantum theory of gravity, just the, merely that state, those statements would be, are difficult. Um, to really make precise. Um, so, for example, you know, if we want to specify the initial state of the system, well, in a curved space-time, that's not 
so easy because you you have to find this, some hypersurface across all of space and you label that and say this represents an initial time slice. Um, that choice is not, uh, you know, there's a number of ways that you can slice up space-time into some family of um, hypersurfaces, these spatial couchy surfaces that are kind of evolving in time like this. Um, and you can do that in quantum field theory because you have a definite causal structure. So if I want to say that this curved slice here represent, you know, represents the state of the system at time uh, t equals zero, then that's a well-defined statement. Um, but I don't know how to make that statement if, if the geometry itself is the thing I'm quantizing because uh -huh. then I don't have that, you know, causal structure. Now I can imagine just choosing one and, you know, I just choose some particular uh, slice and I then just quantize it as I would any other field theory. Um, but it's, it, you know, as far as we can, as best we understand, the quantum theory of gravity that we would come up with will be dependent on this choice of how we chose to slice up our space. Mm -hmm. What if the loop quantum theorist would say, hey, the constraints on such a system in our theory are such that it's independent of this, even though we chose a Cauchy surface, the observables are independent of such foliations. So does that not get over the objection? Well, so I guess the, the problem with, you know, so there's two, two approaches you can do. One is you can say, one is you can just hope that your theory will be independent of, of the choices. Um, you can try and make, uh, have a, a completely background independent approach, which is what loop quantum gravity tries to do. Um, and in particular with the spin foam, they, they, uh, use something called spin foam networks, which is the which is the object of interest, um, and take a background independent approach. And the problem then they face is that they have no idea how to recover mm. the classical geometry at the end. So you know, there's no way of for them to know, or they haven't at least been able to show that at, in, in some low energy limit they will recover gravity, uh, classical gravity, right? Or um, on the other hand, in string theory, they kind of take the other approach where they have a background uh, dependent theory and, you know, hope that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be able to either show that it's independent of that choice or come up with a background independent approach. Um, and some, some would say that, um, you know, a lot of string theory now is something called ADS-CFT or holography. And... Uh, you know, there's there's some claim that that is a is to some extent or to a larger extent background independent. So this post quantum theory of yours, can you please describe it? Um, so the the um, main idea is that uh, you you somehow uh, take seriously the idea that maybe we need this classical background structure of space time, and then it has to be classical. Um, and so you just start with, uh, you can start simply by saying, can we consistently couple classical systems and quantum systems? Um, is there any way to do that? Um, and, you know, at the moment, we have only two frameworks for physics. We have quantum theory and classical mechanics. Um, 
we don't really have at the moment any kind of credible um, other frameworks which are beyond quantum theory, for example. Um, and so the first question you can just ask is, is it possible to consistently couple a quantum system with a classical system? Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a, a huge number of kind of a, approaches to that uh, where people have tried to uh, consistently couple a quantum system with a classical system. Um, and almost all of those have been unsuccessful. Um, but actually in you know, the early or the mid-90s, there was actually a few examples of such consistent coupling um, due to Diyoshi and due to um, uh, two people named uh, Blanchard and Yajik. Um, and they found some examples where you can consistently couple a quantum system with a classical system. Um, and so the first thing we had to do was just to say, okay, what is the most general form of dynamics that we can come up with, which couples a classical system with a, with a quantum system? So that's the first thing you do is you, you derive the most general dynamics uh, that can do that. Before we go to the second thing that you do, can you describe what it means to couple? Right. So um, we're used to um, uh, the following coupling between a classical system and a quantum system. Um, you know, imagine that we are doing um, a double slit experiment. So we have, uh, say we fire a bunch of electrons or some photons through two slits and they form a diffraction pattern um, at the far end and they interfere. So, they, you know, we see a nice interference pattern at the, at the screen behind these two slits. Um, that's a coupling between a quantum system and a classical system because we treat the two slits as classical. We treat the slits, we treat the screen at the back as classical. And there's this little photon gun, which is firing photons or firing right. electrons. And that's, we treat classically. So, or a particle in a, a, a particle in a potential, uh, you know, we treat this potential that's sitting there. That's like a classical potential, which is produced by a magnetic field or something like that. We treat that as classical. And the particle moves I in. I see. I see. It, so that's an example where the classical system exerts a force onto the quantum system, and we do that all the time in in physics. Uh, so we know very well how to couple a classical system which acts onto a quantum system. What we didn't know how to do, except for these examples that you know, there were these examples in the in the nineties. Uh, which, you know, curiously were not, I don't think, really known um, except in a very small community. Um, you know, so, so the, the, what the question that you want to address now is, can a quantum system back-react onto a classical system? Can it exert a force onto a classical system without causing a contradiction? Mm -hmm. um, and there were arguments that were given as to uh, why uh, that will always result in a contradiction. Um, and I think the most famous argument is due to Feynman at, the, um, at one of the first Chapel Hill conferences, uh -huh. uh, these famous conferences that were organized um, to discuss general relativity. Actually, on this channel, there's a documentary on the Chapel Hill conference, particularly with anti-gravity's connection with quantum gravity. Uh, these famous conferences that were organized um, to discuss general relativity um, and the argument was as follows. Um, he imagines a double slit experiment. Um, and 
he imagines this particle, which, you know, sometimes you could imagine a particle which goes through slit number one, and sometimes it goes through slit number two. Um, and then he says, well, imagine that this particle um, has a gravitational field, and imagine that we measure this gravitational field, and imagine that we can measure the gravitational field to arbitrary accuracy, then we could, by measuring the gravitational field to arbitrary accuracy, we can discover where this particle is because we measure its gravitational field. And then we would know if it went through the left slit or the right slit. Mm -hmm. And if we know whether it went through the left slit or the right slit, then uh, we shouldn't have an interference pattern. Yet we see interference patterns, and therefore um, Feynman argued that, that you know, we, we would have to quantize the gravitational field. Why can't someone say, look, we've never done that experiment where we've detected gravitationally whether it's gone through A or B. And if we were to do that, we would see that there would be no interference pattern. Right. Um, that's a good question. And it turns out that if you merely try to write down the state of a quantum system and a classical system such that the classical system knows which, which, you know, which slit the particle went through, then that's enough for you not to have an interference pattern. So whether or not you measure the gravitational field, the mere fact of the gravitational field knowing which slit the particle went through would be enough to cause the interference pattern to, to, to not be there. And that's the same with like, you know, people often ask about quantum theory, you know, do I have to look at the cat, whether it's dead or alive, in order mm, to mm -hmm. collapse it? Does a person have to look at it? Well, no, just the environment measuring, you know, it, the environment measures the cat. And here the gravitational field is measuring the cat and is measuring which that the particle went through. So if your environment is classical, then just the fact that in theory it could be measured to arbitrary accuracy to determine which that the particle went through that would be enough to destroy your interference pattern. Thus, the conclusion is that the particle is in a superposition, like even a gravitational field is in a superposition? Yeah, that's what Feynman concluded, that the gravitational field had to also be in a superposition with the particle. That was the only way to consistently think of the double slit experiment in which the particle produced a gravitational field because it was a massive particle. Um, but if you... Um, and maybe this is in part comes from thinking about things from a quantum information perspective. We're very, you know, we, well, one thing that we've learned um, about quantum theory is that the state of the, you know, the, the state of the wave function, the quantum state, is more analogous to a classical probability distribution than it is to, say, you know, a single. C number or you know a single position and momentum of a particle. So mm -hmm. one way to think of the um, an, an, a good sorry it, it's a good analogy you know, the, the the ket of a quantum state is a bit analogous to a probability distribution, and so and because we think about probability distributions all the time in quantum information theory, it's quite natural to to think about Feynman's no go argument. And to just say, well, wait a second, um, what if the gravitational field is in a probability distribution of different configurations, then measuring the gravitational field will not determine which slit the particle went through. So, for example, if the particle goes through the left slit, it might produce some random, slightly random gravitational field. And if it goes through the right slit, it will produce a slightly different random distribution of gravitational fields. But because 
we have a random distribution of two different gravitational fields, measuring the gravitational field does not determine which slit the particle went through. Is a C number supposed to be thought of as a scalar or a complex number? Like C stands for what? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So uh, I guess in this case, when I when I talk about a C number, I just mean that the, sorry, I guess this is in, say, the context of uh, looking at Einstein's equation where you have an operator on one side and then let's just, you know, it's just a number, the Einstein tensor on the other. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a single number versus an operator or say a vector, which is, you know, in quantum theory, observables are operators which act on quantum states, which are vectors. Whereas in classical mechanics, we just have, you know, you know the result of a measurement, or sorry, the, the particle is just described by a number. This is, just, this is the particle's position and momentum. I've heard the term C number. I've heard it, but I've never read it. So I don't know right. what the definition, what is the definition of C number? Right. So what's the difference between classical randomness and quantum randomness? You mentioned it before, but can you briefly outline it once more? Because right. you're about to make the connection between, well, you're about to explain how randomness solves a harmony issue. Right, right. So um, a quantum system, well, so, so, okay, so a classical system can be, can have a probability. So we can imagine, for example, a particle has a position and a momentum, and we can also imagine that we have a probability distribution of different positions and momentums. So, um, you know, there's some probability that the particle has position X equals zero and momentum, you know, 10 uh, okay. <laughs> units. Yeah. Um, and um, we can imagine such a distribution and the probabilities um, both of its, you know, the, of particular values that it, the position can take and the values that the momentum can take, those are all positive and they all sum to one if we were to sum them up. On the other hand, a quantum state, we cannot ascribe probabilities to a particular outcome of a position and a momentum measurement. That just doesn't exist. Um, we can Because we're either going to perform the position measurement or we're going to perform the momentum measurement, but we don't perform both. Um, and so the quantum state does not need to be described by a probability distribution over position momentum whose values are all positive. Um, it's describable by something else, which is, you know, it can be described, for example, by something called a Wigner distribution, which looks a lot like a probability distribution, except its values are not always positive. Mm. Um, and that's okay because um, I only, I will never measure and get a negative probability because hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with shopify shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets shopify supports you at every point of sale both online and in person They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. I can't measure both the position and the momentum of the particle. So it's okay if a quantum state, if its distribution has negative values, that's not okay for a classical distribution. It has to always have positive values because, you know, the probability that a particle has a particular position momentum needs to be positive. So now what's meant by that the coupling between gravity or some gravitational system, some classical system and some quantum system has to be stochastic. Also, can you outline what the difference between randomness and stochasticity is? Okay. I don't know um, that there's a... So I use those words interchangeably. Maybe there's a more technical uh, terminology and maybe they do mean different things, but I I tend to use them interchangeably. Um, uh, Although I guess when I think of a stochastic process, I think of a dynamical process. So, you know, the particle is going through the left slit and in a deterministic theory, it would bend space-time in a particular way. Uh And in a stochastic theory it would, you know, it almost like flips a coin and depending on the value of the coin, it bends space-time in a slightly different way. So you can imagine that there's these coins being tossed all the time, which determine, so the particle goes to the left slit and it produces some, you know, different gravitational fields with different probabilities. Um, And if it goes through the other slit, the right slit, it will produce some, it'll bend space-time in some other way but it's it, the way in which it bends space-time is determined not just by which slit it went through, but also by it flipping a coin. Now, I want to be careful when I say f- flipping a coin because that one is almost imagining that there is some physical process by which it determines which of these gravitational fields to produce. Um, but actually, I, I don't believe that there is actually any physical process which a lot, which is determining which gravitational field is being produced. Let's make it simple and imagine that someone's walking through two doors. Does that mean that they're right. constantly carrying with them a coin and even before they encounter those two doors, they're flipping it and they're making some other decision and then when they get to the door, then they flip it and then it's a left-right decision? Is this coin just being flipped for them? How does this work? There's no physical process? Yeah, I mean, maybe even another way of, of saying it is imagine that... Um, um, someone's going through the right door, you know, someone, someone goes through the right door or the left door. If I'm far away, I can sit there with a pendulum and I could actually figure out, I could try and figure out which door they went through by trying to measure their gravitational field. Um, but now imagine that at every point in space, uh, the gravitational field is just fluctuating randomly. So it's as if, you know, it could have one value, but someone mm-hmm. just goes and randomly makes that value be slightly higher or slightly lower. And so at every point in space, you kind of can imagine that there's this noise, this randomness, Uh which Uh somehow is affecting the gravitational field and making it very difficult to measure and determine exactly what the gravitational field, whether it's being produced by the person going through the right door or the left door. 
Okay, then the way that I'm imagining it is that you have a pendulum and it's, I don't know how the pendulum apparatus is supposed to be when you actually measure, but I'm just going to say that it's completely still. And then you see, does it move slightly to the left or move slightly to the right because it's attracted to the person who goes to the left or to the right? Right. Okay. You're saying that actually, if you were to look at that pendulum, it would be constantly jittery because just even without anyone going through the doors. Right. Oh, okay. So what I was about to say is, could this not be solved with more precision? But then you would have to do a series of measurements. Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, the, the, the most famous gra- gravity measurement is probably in the Cavendish experiment where they sit there with this, you know, uh, uh, beam with uh, two weights on the end and it's, it's held up by uh, a string and it kind of rotates like this. And you use that to measure, say, the gravitational field of the earth or of two balls of a mm-hmm. kilogram mass, for example. Um, and if you ever have seen that experiment or you've tried to do it in, say, an undergraduate physics lab, you'll see that the, the torsion pendulum kind of moves about quite a lot and uh, is jiggling much in the way that we just described. Um, and the reason it's jiggling is mostly because air molecules are hitting it and uh, the system is very noisy and there's heat and um, we don't have very good control of gusts of air, which push and pull the pendulum. Um, But imagine that we got rid of all those gusts of air and had everything in a perfect vacuum and didn't have any stray electromagnetic fields or gravitational fields around, but we cleaned up everything. Would there still be some fundamental noise? And this theory predicts that there will be. Um, And it's this noise which somehow allows um, interference patterns because the gravitational field, because it's random and noisy, it doesn't allow us to really determine which slit the particle went through. Now, the quantum field theorist would say there is noise anyhow because there's some fluctuations. So is there a way of you distinguishing the noise from the fluctuations versus, I don't know what type of noise this is called, but right. this post-quantum noise? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, there is disagreement. So, you know, I, I've had disagreement with some of my colleagues about this. Um but uh you know we've uh we've we've calculated how much noise there has to be and there has to be a lot more noise in a if gravity is fundamentally classical there needs to be a lot more noise in the gravitational field in comparison to the quantum case and it's true that in the quantum case you also need some noise there because you can imagine the same experiment the double slit experiment that i just gave you know, you can imagine the same argument being made about the electromagnetic field. How is it that if, you know, the particle goes through the left slit or the right slit, I can measure the electromagnetic field. And, you know, what is it about the electromagnetic field, which, uh, which doesn't allow me to determine which slit the particle went through? Uh huh. So what is it about the electromagnetic field? Right, right. Well, it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's the fact that there is, um, you know, we can't measure the electromagnetic field to arbitrary accuracy. Um, I can't measure, uh, qu- because, because the electromagnetic field has a quantum nature, then I can't measure with preci- with exact precision, um, you know, the electromagnetic field and say it's conjugate degrees of freedom. Um, so because we can't measure the elect- electromagnetic field to arbitrary accuracy, we're not able to um, uh, determine which state the particle went through. Or another way of saying it is this. Um, in quantum mechanics, you can have two different states which cannot be distinguished. You know, 
You, in other words, there, the, the electromagnetic field will be in a different state depending on whether the particle went through the left slit or the right slit. But even though the state of electromagnetic field is different, I still can't tell it apart. It's, it has, you know, some overlap. Uh, both states, there's overlap between the two states, mm -hmm. and those two states are not orthogonal, we would say. In other words, they can't be distinguished perfectly. Um, and it's because those two different states of the electromagnetic field are not distinguishable, um, it's that which allows you to still have an interference pattern. Now, sometimes it, it, you don't, right? Sometimes the particle will go through the left slit and it will emit a photon because it happens to hit the wall in a certain way. And if I were to measure that photon, I would be able to determine which slit the particle went through. So there is some decoherence. The, the interference pattern does get disturbed a little bit by the electromagnetic field, but not by very much. This theory of yours doesn't have predictions. So one prediction I see is that it's a null prediction, namely that there is no graviton. Right. Does it have other predictions? And am I even correct by saying that there is no graviton? Right. There's, gra there's gravitational we waves, but there is no, um, you know, quantized particle which which uh, is responsible for carrying the gravitational force. Um, and so, so the, uh, one of the big predictions is this noise in the gravitational field. So, you know, we predict that you should go and do the Cavendish experiment, and you will have to see. Um, yeah, a large amount of noise in the gravitational field. Now, the, the problem is that there is already a large amount of noise in the gravitational field. If you ask the people at NIST who are responsible for keeping the one kilogram mass mm -hmm. okay. and telling us how, you know, uh, keeping that to, uh, and doing these precise measurements of, say, a one kilogram mass, they will tell you that it's actually a very difficult experiment to perform and that um, their measurements do have quite a large variance. Um, and inaccuracy. So um, the experiment we're proposing is, you know, higher precision tests of those measurements of, say, a one kilogram mass in order to put a bound on how much noise there is in the system. I mean, what's, what's exciting, even if you, whether or not you believe in, you know, if we, I feel like this question of whether gravity is fundamentally quantum or classical is a real one. And I think what's exciting is that this actually allows us through these precision Cavendish uh, measurements to actually you know, determine whether gravity has a quantum or classical nature. Would the noise, if you were to, with precision, measure the gravitational field, would that noise still be there even in other approaches to harmonizing gravity with quantum mechanics like string theory where you sum over metrics? So like there is some uncertainty as to what the gravitational field right. is in string theory. So would they say that that should also produce noise or is this noise distinguishable from the noise that you're talking about? Um, so there will be some noise and it, and it has in some ways a similar form, but the amount of it is just much less in a quantum theory. And the reason is, um, is that in, is, is, you know, in a classical theory, you, you can, you can do, you can perform it in some sense, two different experiments. You can do a precision test of gravity and see if there's noise in the gravitational field. And the other thing you can do is you can do an interference experiment. So I can take a gold atom, for example, a very heavy atom and see if I get an interference pattern. And if you get an interference pattern, you can, I mean, you can, you can keep pushing how coherent you can make a gold atom. So I might imagine a gold atom that uh, can be in two, you know, can follow two different paths and be in a superposition of these two different paths. And if I can keep the gold atom in superposition for a very long time, 
then it would mean that I need a large amount of noise in the gravitational field in order to keep that coherence. Mm. So there's a trade-off in some sense between how long I can keep a gold atom in superposition and how much noise there needs to be in the gravitational field in order for the gold atom to keep being in a coherent superposition. And that, there's a trade-off between those two things. And so I can perform both those experiments. And um, if, if I can, and the longer I'm able to, to um, extend the coherence time of gold atom, the more noise I know there must be in the gravitational field if the gravitational field is classical. So between those two experiments, you could either rule, you know, you, you could potentially say rule out the classical theory of gravity. Um, whereas in the quantum case, there's no such trade-off. You don't need to have, I mean, there's a, there's a, a related trade-off, but it's not quite the same. And so it turns out that for the, for a quantum system, if, if the gravitational field is quantized, then there doesn't need to be nearly as much noise in it. Understood. If one wants to read up more about this, which I'm sure many, many people do, what would be, forgive the pun, the canonical paper of yours to read? <laughs> um, so there's just, you know, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a recent Quanta article, which you mentioned, which is, you know, probably reasonably accessible to a popular audience. Um, I'll put the link to that in the description, as well as to the Quanta video of yours. Great, thanks. And then, um, you know, the, the first article was called A Post-Quantum Theory of Classical Gravity. Um, and that is quite a detailed article, but at least the first two or three pages, um, you know, uh, tries to explain, you know, this Feynman argument and why um, it doesn't rule out a classical theory of gravity. And then it also discusses, um, you know, one of the big reasons that people um, disregarded the fact that we could uh, have a classical theory of gravity was that they essentially assumed that having a classical theory of gravity was was equivalent to something called the semi-classical Einstein's equation, where... Um, where you just take the expectation value of the stress-energy tensor and then uh, put, stick that into Einstein's equation. Um, and th that's been known for a long time to be a pathological equation if we take it as fundamental. Um, it leads to all kinds of problems. Um, and so um, people somehow associated semi-classical gravity with, uh, you know, with attempts to uh, keep the gravitational field classical. What's so pathological about it? Um, so it, it doesn't satisfy this principle of linearity, which I said is you know, so important, um, and which I think any theory, so any theory, ought to be linear. Um, and when you have a theory which depends on expectation values, then it, al it allows you to do all thing, all kinds of things like superluminally signal, fast, you know, signal faster than light, or uh, or in some sense violate the uncertainty principle because if um, if you can measure an average value, then that's a pretty weird thing, right? The, like in a single in mm -hmm. a single go. Like um, here's here's a way of explaining it. Okay. Um, imagine that I flip a coin and with some probability I put a planet on the right, and with some prob if, if I, so sure. if I get heads I put the planet on the right, and if I get tails I put the planet on the left. And now imagine that I have a theory where I am attracted to the expectation value of those two uh, state of affairs. Um, so on average, the planet is neither on the left or the right, it's in the middle. <laughs> um, and so what happens in uh, a theory where you take expectation values 
is that if I drop a, you know, if I drop a test particle towards the, uh, and, and watch the test particle free fall towards the planets, they will fall straight down the middle between the two places where I would have put the planet. So, you know, here's the planet. If I get heads, here's the planet. If I get tails, if I take the expectation value, the expectation value is somehow down the middle and that's where the particle falls. And that's of course not what we expect to happen. So, um, a theory where you use expectation values rather than say, you know, something else <laughs> is going to lead you to, into a world of pain, essentially, because of that. In your post-quantum theory, is then the conservation of momentum something that is just emergent or not fundamental? Because if you're shooting a particle, let's say a planet, like you mentioned, the planet could go here or there. Does that not then send the planet off to another a slightly different trajectory than it was before? Um, so, the, so, in, so there is a... Um, so it, the theory conserves momentum, um, but it uh, doesn't conserve all, you know, there are things which are not conserved in it, which would be conserved in a deterministic theory. Um, so Noether's theorem, which is this you know, famous theorem which connects uh, symmetries with conservation laws, um, because we believe in, you know, uh, time translate, you know, our theories of physics are invariant under a time translation, um, and they're also invariant if we move, you know, three meters to the right or three meters to the left, the laws of physics don't change. Um, and that tells us that momentum and energy are conserved. Um, Noether's theorem assumes that the laws of physics are deterministic and are given by a unitary transformation. If they're not, as in these theories, then you don't have the same connection between mm. symmetries and conservation laws. And it turns out in this theory that um, because you, you know, there's the, because you have lost this connection between symmetry and conservation laws, then energy does not need to be conserved. Um, uh, and so you, you can get something which, you know, may look like some kind of anomalous heating, um, coming from these sorts of theories. Um, now in general relativity, energy is very difficult to define in the first place. So, you know, it's, it, understanding what exactly that means to such a theory where you don't really have a, a you know a locally defined energy that is that's another matter but uh it's quite complicated in terms of how conservation laws are respected in such a theory speaking of laws you have a paper i believe it's called the second laws of thermo of quantum thermodynamics right so firstly what is quantum thermodynamics and then why are there multiple second laws right um, well, so quantum, so we're always, uh, at least when I was an undergrad, we were taught that thermodynamics is a theory that you get in the thermodynamic limit. You know, in other words, I, um, have a gas and it has many particles and I take the limit that the gas is, you know, the volume goes to infinity and that's what thermodynamics is. It's that theory of large systems. Um, but you can ask, you know, what uh, happens to, if I just have, say, a single gas molecule or a single quantum system, does it still obey things which look like the second law? Um, and can I still define some laws of thermodynamics for those systems? And it turns out you can. So, you know, for, for a single particle, the entropy also has to increase. 
Um, but it turns out there's a whole bunch of other quantities which has to increase it as well. So I can think of, in some sense, the second law of thermodynamics as placing a restriction on what will happen to my system as time goes on. So I know that the entropy has to increase, but there's a bunch of other entropies that you can also define, and it turns out those also have to increase as well. Um, there's something called Renyi entropies. There's all kinds of mm-hmm. uh, entropies which are different to the standard one. Um, and it turns out those all have to increase. Um, and what happens is, as I have more and more particles, and as I make my system size grow larger and larger, it turns out that all these other second laws and all these other entropies become equivalent to each other. And so in the, in the thermodynamic limit, I only have one entropy, but um, on the small scale, I have a whole bunch of other entropies, which turns out they also obey some kind of a second law. We corresponded over email, you and I, and I spoke about Flaminia, who's also working on quantum information and gravity. And mm-hmm. I was curious to what the relationship between her approach is and yours. Right. Um, so uh, so she's, um, her and some of her colleagues have uh, proven various theorems um, about what happens if the gravitational field is classical. Um, and they've done it in... Um, a more general framework than we often work in. So they haven't made any uh, an assumption, for example, they haven't assumed that um, matter obeys the laws of quantum theory. They've allowed, um, uh, they've considered more general sorts of interactions. And mm. in fact, you can, um, there's all kinds of machinery um, you, that has been developed called, say, general, it's, it goes by the name of generalized probabilistic theories, which is a huge class of theories um, which go beyond quantum theory. Um, and uh, we don't know if they actually exist, these theories, or whether they are well-defined or not, but you can certainly uh, think about the kinds of, some of the properties they may have. Um, and it turns out that, um, you know, so I mentioned this, this uh, the, these experiments we've proposed where we show that if gravity is fundamentally classical, then it has to be stochastic. It has to have randomness. Um and they've essentially, you know, one of the results, for example, is that um, even if we go beyond quantum theory, if gravity is classical, then it somehow you know, will still have to be stochastic, even if we're able to modify the law that matter, the laws of, of matter. So if we go beyond quantum theory from the matter distribution. And what about Chiara Marletto? What about constructor theory's relationship to yours? Yeah, so that's another example where... Um, you know, um, where, where she has looked at, um, uh, theories, uh, which go beyond quantum theory. Um, and, uh, I guess, you know, in both cases, the, the claim has been that it rules out a classical theory of gravity. Um, but usually there's, you know, some assumption, for example, uh, of, um, reversibility or an assumption of determinism and, so what these what these theorems tend to show is that if we have a classical theory of gravity, uh, then they have to be irreversible or have some sort of indeterminism or randomness in them. So I think uh, this is kind of you know establishing uh, that if gravity is classical, it has to be stochastic. Um, I think from their point of view that that is so unpalatable that for them and for maybe many other people, it is enough to rule out the classical theory of gravity. 
So if you believe that the laws of physics should be deterministic and you don't believe in fundamental randomness, then you probably are unlikely to believe that gravity could be classical. I also spoke to you over email again about a no-go theorem by, I believe it's Marletto. I believe it's her. Or maybe she referenced it. But either way, can you talk about what that is and how yours escapes it? Right. So, uh, yeah, there's a no-go theorem um, due to um, um, Marletto and Vedral, um, which essentially... Uh, I mean, in some sense, it's um, related to this Feynman thought experiment we mentioned where we have a particle that is in some superposition and it produces a gravitational field. And if I can measure the gravitational field, then that would seem to, uh, you know, determine which slit the particle goes through and therefore rules out having an interference pattern. You can imagine that you have some other theory, which is not quantum theory, um, and what they've shown is that you know that argument still holds, um, but again, there's you know there's that loophole that I mentioned where if the gravitational field is has some randomness in it, then you know, those sorts of arguments don't rule out classical gravity in that case. So I think the big question is: Do we believe? You know, uh, well, first of all, I, for me, this has now become an experimental question. We should go out and measure whether the gravitational field has randomness in it. If it doesn't. You know, then we've essentially ruled out a classical theory of gravity. Is it conceivable that we can perform this measurement within the next 20 years or so? Right. I mean, in some sense, we already have placed bounds on such a theory. So, um, you know, we can, re- it's just a question of how much. And um, I feel like we need to better understand the theory before I would be able to tell you, you know, exactly what those numbers are. Um, because what we've essentially been able to, um, it, it seems that in order to correctly predict how much noise you need in the gravitational field, you need to go, um, uh, it's a fully relativistic calculation. So you need to go beyond the weak field limit. Um, and so we're still performing those calculations. Mm-hmm. Now, Bohmian mechanics was something else that I mentioned to you, and I'm curious to see the relationship between yours and yeah, what's the relationship between your theory and Bohmian mechanics? Right. I mean, there's not there's not um, an immediate one, but there is... Um, like, does yours rule out Bohmian mechanics, for instance? Well, it's hard to see how you could rule out Bohmian. So I guess that's... We discussed before this kind of philosophical um, side of physics, uh, in particular in terms of the measurement theory of, you know, in terms of these various interpretations of quantum mechanics. And so it, um, it's depending on your flavor of Bohmian mechanics or many worlds interpretation or, uh, et cetera. Uh, you know, ma- many of them are equivalent from a physics point of view. Um, although their flavors of those interpretations or those, th- you know, theories, uh, um, where there is a physical difference between, um, say, Bohmian mechanics and some other interpretation of quantum theory. Um, what I, what I will say is that, uh, what the one thing I like about these, um, classical quantum theories is that you don't need it, 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 you don't need the measurement postulate of quantum theory. So I think one of the reasons, uh, we have all, you know, this discussion of interpretations of quantum theory is because it's, it's very unsatisfying how quantum theory deals with measurement. Um, 
And we seem to have the standard rules of quantum theory where things evolve deterministically and then we perform a measurement and we get, you know, the state supposedly collapses and we get a random result. And that's not very well understood. On the other hand, in these, uh, in this, you know, theory of gravity, in some sense, the gravitational field is doing the work for you and is causing states to localize and for the wave function to collapse. So um, because the gravitational field is in some sense always measuring where the particle is, it um, one doesn't need to invoke the measurement postulate of quantum mechanics. So it, in some sense, it's its own interpretation of quantum theory. I see, I see. So for the people who are researching this field of quantum gravity or making quantum mechanics coherent with general relativity, what advice do you have for them? For people who are going into this field, for young people as well, just entering math and physics, for people who are going into specifically what you study, and for people who are researching? Right. I mean, so um, I think that, so I, I guess the, one thing I would say is that I feel like the landscape of, of of gravity research, for example, is quite a difficult terrain at the moment um, in the sense that if you're, if you're a student and you want to study, say, quantum gravity or reconciling gravity with quantum theory, um, there's very few games in town. You can, you, you know, if you're oh. a graduate student, for example, you can... Uh, work uh, in the string theory group or a, a loop quantum gravity group. There's a few of those, although yeah. that's a much smaller field. And then there's a few of these kind of uh, individual programs, uh, which maybe involve just, uh, say, a couple, three or four researchers. Um, and it's a very difficult terrain as a student because, you know, the history of physics is that usually it's young people that are, make, you know, new paradigm shifts or great physics discoveries. Um, and I feel like it's it's difficult these days to work on your you know your own stuff. You almost is, there's this uh, because there are these big communities. You're almost like pushed to attach yourself to one of them and become a string theorist or become a loop quantum gravity person. And I think that is unfortunate. And I think what we really need is people to kind of go off in their own direction and do their own stuff. And um, I think that, you know, invariably will mean attaching yourself to some group, but hopefully um, being given the freedom to, you know, go in a different direction. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the sort of, you know, the questions you need to ask when you're starting on a research project is, you know, how much scope do you have to do your own thing or, mm. um, can you find, you know, if you really, I guess, have to find something you're really interested in and maybe a supervisor who has the same interest or you have to somehow go off on your own. And that's a lot harder. And I, I fear that that is one of the one of the reasons that it's so difficult to make progress in quantum gravity is part because it's a really hard problem. But in part, it's because there's, you know, there's not a large scope for just going off on your own. You are often just you know, in some sense, drafted into an existing program. When you say that there's not a large scope, you mean there's not funding or there's not opportunities? Well, opportunities equals funding. Well, I, 
it's hard to know exactly you know it's a multifaceted problem i think part of it is that um for whatever reason uh people like to work on the same thing as everyone else and i mean we are social creatures and we want to be part of the community and so if there's a big community doing something then it's very natural to want to be part of that community and do that research um but it's it, i i feel like it's gotten to quite an extreme um uh-huh. It feels quite extreme at the moment. I feel like even when I was a student, you know, there were various researchers who I would say didn't have a firm allegiance to, say, string theory or loop quantum gravity, and you could kind of work with one of them and work on your own approach. Um, whereas I think now, um, for whatever reason, the, the the landscape has just become a lot more divided into different communities who do different things and it's much harder to go off on your own. And maybe, maybe that's just because it's students worry that if they go off on their own, they won't get a job. I think that's probably a big part of it. Speaking of being a student, my brother was a student, <laughs> a graduate student, or maybe a PhD student at the same time you were studying physics. That's right. Yeah. You remember Sebastian? Of course I do. Yeah. He was a, uh, I mean, he was brilliant. So, um, I can't. I think we may have even have shared an office for a while. He was, I think, working with Gordon Seminoff. Is that right? Yes, right, right, right. Right. Yeah. Do say hello to him for me. Yeah, <laughs> so. I will. I will. Do you have any teachers that have changed your life or gave you a new perspective? Ones that are particularly memorable to you, whether in high school or in, even in university. Yeah, I mean, I, in in. But not your supervisor, because that's obviously... Something. That's obvious, yeah. <laughs> it's like your father, isn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, in high school, I had, I think, a great science teacher, um, uh, Ping Lai. And uh, he, so he had a PhD in physics, and I, you know, I think I learned special relativity from him. And uh, uh, it, he just gave us a lot of scope to kind of explore and think about our own things. Um, and so that was definitely, you know, uh, important that I, I think I had him as a physicist, uh, as a physics teacher in high school. And, you know, in elementary school as well, I had a really good, uh, it wasn't even my science teacher, but it was just a teacher that let you just kind of go off on your own and study whatever you wanted. And I feel like that, um, you know, letting, letting me and letting other students just do whatever you, you know, go off on your own and, and study what you want is, I think, a really important um, part of learning and for me obviously is being able to like you know i'm fortunate enough that that kind of way mm-hmm. of learning has been able to continue into you know my middle age so that's quite lucky but I, i'm definitely grateful that i had teachers who let me who let me do that at a young age and before i let you go i'm curious what has been the reception since your quanta article from the public and then from the physics community um, actually the, you know, I have to say that the people have been quite open to it. I feel like, um, there's definitely been, um, especially from the, the relativist community. Well, I would say even from string theorists, I feel like there's been an openness, um, often it's of the, of the, of the form of, well, I don't believe that gravity is classical, but I'm glad that you're, mm. you know, exploring the consequences of that. I'm glad someone is doing that. Um, and, um, so, you know, that's, I, I feel like that's at the, ex- 
at one end. And so there hasn't been, there, there haven't been many people who have, who, um, most people have been, I think, quite engaged with it. The, for me, what is the most exciting engagement I've had is there's this community of people who are interested in actually performing the experiment. Um, and so that has been exciting in the sense of, I think what we're, you know, I think what we're going to see is a, a large scale effort to test the quantum nature of gravity. Because I think for a while, there was always this assumption that um, in order to test quantum gravity, we needed to go to the Planck scale. We needed to go to incredibly high energies um, before we could ever make a prediction about gravity. And what we're learning now is that actually there's all kinds of things that you can test for in terms of uh, quantum theory of gravity, which do not require Planck energies. So for example, can graviton, you know, testing whether gravitons can create entanglement, that's something that you can, that doesn't require Planck energies and uh, which uh, we hope is maybe feasible within the next decade or so. So I think that's been the most exciting, this kind of experimental. Well, it's been exciting. It's been illuminating to speak to you. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and I look forward to speaking with you again. Likewise. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jonathan Oppenheim. Something that you should keep in mind is that for this guest and for any of the guests, including all of the backlog of Toe, you can leave a question for the guest in the specific format of writing the word query with a colon and then your question. This applies to any episode, like I mentioned, like if you want to leave a question for Lou Elizondo when he comes on next, if you want to leave a question for Jonathan Oppenheim or Edward Frankel, by the way, the Edward Frankel episode which is listed on screen now and in the description, in my opinion, is one of the best Toe episodes that we've ever recorded. You'll see that we both skirt between technical and personal and emotional, and it's super revealing. We both got more personal in this episode than we've gotten in any other podcast, both of us. Again, Edward Frankel is in the description. I encourage you to listen to at least the halfway point and you won't be disappointed. I've also started this tradition where on every episode or every other episode, I'll highlight a comment and read it because, hey, if you're like me, then you don't have many people to speak to about these subjects outside of conversing online and digitally. This is my way of not only highlighting a certain comment, but also encouraging the community that we've established. The last time it was Bijou's comments about there being no wave function of the universe, at least from one point of view, but from another point of view, there does exist a wave function of the universe. This time I want to tell you about a comment not attached to a podcast, but attached to a post. And to explain that, I'm going to just read the post for you so that you have some context. Dear friends, as I sit down to write this, I want to express my deepest gratitude. Your support, engagement, and the passion for the Theories of Everything podcast have been the driving force behind this endeavor. We've built a community that shares a fervor for science and philosophy. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Truly. Despite our 240,000 subscribers and the vibrant community that we've built, the past 11 months have been challenging. Behind the scenes, our channel has been grappling with financial struggles. Our content, deeply rooted in science and philosophy, unfortunately falls into a category that doesn't fetch the highest ad revenue on YouTube, to say the least. This isn't just our struggle. Even Sabine Hassenfelder recently mentioned a similar issue. During 2023, I've been working harder than ever, which I didn't think was possible, often at the expense of personal and family time. The effort that goes into each Toe episode is immense. I pour my heart and soul into researching and studying for each episode to ensure that we deliver the most in-depth and high-quality content, forcing myself to watch myself even, which is extremely cringeworthy, as you can imagine, so that I can improve on each episode. Despite my love for studying for Toes and the joy I derive from interacting with our guests and community, 
the financial returns have been far from promising. This letter is a discussion or disclosure by me on what's been going on behind the scenes at Toe. Our struggles have been exacerbated by issues with sponsorships, which were once a significant part of our revenue. Despite the promise of good returns, the sponsorships recently turned out to be a financial setback. Unforeseen expenses such as poor deals that we weren't aware of until later, writing scripts, dealing with the sponsor intermediaries, acquiring products for review that were sent across the border, and then paying our dedicated editor have strained our resources. There were even instances where we unknowingly did sponsored spots for free, believing that we were being paid. That's right, for free. This is unheard of. However, I take full responsibility for these mishaps, and I sincerely apologize for any disruption they may have caused to our content. I've had and still have no podcasting mentors nor connections. Zero. Everything's been built from the ground up. I've learned some hard lessons along the way. There were several times when we interviewed large names and they didn't so much as tweet about Toe, despite them promoting other podcasters. I would be disingenuous if I were to pretend I'm not a tad bit hurt, but that's just how it goes. Luckily, the depth and breadth of our content have always been a point of pride at Theories of Everything. In fact, the guests themselves invariably remark on air and off air how this is the most thorough, the most in-depth of any conversation with them out there. Wonderfully, even the comment sections seem to echo the sentiment. Like, man, oh man, that's fantastic. I believe in quality over quantity, at least for Toe, and work to ensure that every single episode is not just informative with meticulous timestamps, but also thought-provoking and engaging. Hearing from you and the community about how Toe has ignited intellectual curiosity, changed lives, inspired you, helped you through your own dark nights, and provided a platform for discussions that might otherwise be out of reach, fuels my commitment. It's an honor and a privilege. I too know what it feels like to be lonely in this space of physics, math, AI, consciousness, without anyone to talk to who doesn't look at you like a nerdy quantum quirkster, other than, say, virtually. To keep Toe alive and thriving, we're working on several projects. So for instance, number one, we're developing an artificial intelligence tool to recover old audio and improve the sound of episodes like the old Chomsky episodes. Number two, there's a lost lecture of Stephen Wolfram's from MindFest that we're recovering the audio from by developing, again, an AI tool. And this tool should prove helpful for future podcasts as well. Number three, we're working on translating our episode into different languages to reach a wider audience. You'll now see there are several accurately captioned languages. Number four, I would like to do more in-person interviews. Number five, I would like to do compilation episodes on specific topics from several guests. So usually you have one guest speaking on several topics. What about if we just said, hey, does quantum mechanics give rise to consciousness? Yes or no. And then we have every guest on that subject. Or hey, what is the physics of free will? And we have every guest on that subject. Number six, the upcoming Edward Frankel video. Actually, now it's released. And again, it's in the description. We talk about esoteric topics like the Langlands program, but also childhood trauma and how it's shaped us for better or worse. Most channels of our size have teams, but Toe doesn't. It's just me and the editor, and we each work more than full time. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the darling angel that is my wife, of course. Without her, there would be no Toe. There may not even be a Kurt. You'll see many other YouTubers interviewing the same people, and that's because it pays significantly more to go with what works. On Toe, I've purposefully chosen not to interview high-profile guests that I feel like are featured on the podcast circuit repeatedly. Now, the positive side of interviewing people repeatedly is that it opens you up to massive connections and influence. But on the deleterious side, 
I feel like it would sacrifice a modicum of character, in my likely wrong opinion. Instead, I've opted to bring hidden gems like Michael Levin, who has astounding theories and studies to the forefront and to delve extensively into them. Therefore, I'm reaching out to you, our loyal subscribers, for support. Your contribution would go a long way in helping us maintain and improve the quality of our content, ensuring the longevity of Toe. If you would like to contribute to Toe, there are two primary ways, both listed in the description. There's number one, Patreon, at patreon.com slash Kurt There's number two, PayPal, at tinyurl slash PayPal, T-O-E, with a capital T-O-E, lowercase PayPal. In fact, PayPal gives more to the creator. Every dollar helps. It's difficult to underestimate how your support keeps Toe and myself and my wife going, both financially in terms of the emotional support, knowing there are people who will voluntarily donate something that they could have spent in innumerable ways somewhere else for no other reason than they want to help out. If you already support Toe and want to increase your donation, then of course we would more than welcome that as well. Thank you again for being part of the Toe community. Your continued backing and engagement mean the world to us. Here's to exploring even more theories of everything together. Warm regards, Kurt Jaimungle. P.S. If you're ever curious about what future projects there are of Toe, you can always message me with specific questions. Me and or my wife read every single comment and try to respond when we can. There's also a day in the life of a hectic time at Toe, and luckily it's no longer anywhere near as shambolic. Despite the turmoil of the past 11 months, they've simultaneously been the most rapturous of my life. It's a blessing. Thank you dearly. Man, thank you. Thank you so much. After the posting of that letter, there's been a flurry of support, not only from you, from the audience, but also from other podcasters. Coincidentally enough, Theo Vaughn, a channel with over 2 million subscribers, just talked about this same issue happening to him on his channel with being cheated over sponsor deals and also waiting approximately a year before saying anything publicly, because we're not allowed to. Here's a 65-second snippet from September 2023 on Theo Vaughn's channel. Link in the description. Uh, so, yeah, you can keep that money, um, but you can't get me to shut up, man. You know how many other podcasters wanted to say this shit right now but can't say it? The way that people are able to cheat and lie and, and manipulate the system. Fuck, it's just fucking kind of sad, man. And Yeah, but I just wanted to speak up for myself, man. I've waited a year to speak up for myself. They put us through so much bullshit. And I don't know if there's other people over there that did it too. And maybe we'll get more information. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't do that to somebody. And he, they, they, they did, man, they did it to, I mean, some of these people's podcasts, this is all they had, man. And these motherfuckers did that, bro. So I'm sorry about that. Um, and I'm sorry for them. And yeah, I'm just happy to have a voice for myself. And that's one thing that we built here that, that he had nothing to do with. He had nothing to do with. In fact, he stole on our backs once, and I'm not letting these people do it to me two times. So for anybody that had to take that, that sucker deal over there, uh, this vo- I'm speaking on behalf- uh, for all of us, man, because um, I know that some of you guys have said to me that you wanted to say some of these same things. And Notes, and the person he's speaking about has nothing to do with Toe. I just want to make that clear, though we've gone through what's similar. One comment of the over 500, like, man, this post alone has more comments on it than when I ask for questions for Yosha Bach. Or for Noam Chomsky. Like, holy moly. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. One comment that stood out was this one. By My Baloney has a first name. Kurt, I recall another YouTube channel about a year ago who was trying to recover from being demonetized, censored, and blocked. One day he posted and asked all the listeners to do three things that day. Hit like, leave a comment, and go back and watch one of the past videos. I think he said just watching the past videos serves the same purpose. 
As I recall, he got a huge boost because everyone jumped on the opportunity to give moral support through YouTube, but he also gave the PayPal and the Patreon link like you've done. So today on Toe, I hit like. I left a comment, and I'm going to go back and watch past videos, like, and comment. So it turns out that watching past videos does wonders for Toe, for the algorithm on YouTube especially. So look through and see if there's one that you normally wouldn't click on. That's important because it shows YouTube, hey, the audience that ordinarily likes topic X also likes topic Y. It's not just narrowly topic X. So click on a Toe episode that you think, man, there's no way I'll, I don't even understand the title of that, let alone think I like it. Click on it, watch it, and I think you'll be surprised. And at the very least, YouTube will start pushing Toe to more people. There's also playlists. So if you want, you can look in the YouTube description. There's several playlists for Toe. You can click on that so you can go through episodes one by one if you like. Every episode on Toe is edited so there's no large spikes in the volume or loud jumps with music so that people can listen as they sleep. Because I know I used to listen to podcasts as I sleep and I would dislike when they would just quote someone and then the levels were obscene and it would wake me and then I couldn't fall back asleep because I'm worried it's not going to happen again. That won't happen for Toe. If you personally want to message me to get in contact for whatever reason, for sponsorships, for donations, for support, just telling me what Toe has meant to you, if that's what you want, then you can email me directly at Toe, so T-O-E, at IndieFilmTO.com. So that's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-T-O.com. Toe at IndieFilmTO.com. Thank you so much for all your support. Thank you, thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.